Maybe no one liked smart. How could you not like smart, though? Did you like smart? <laughs> Are you laughing, Mary yes. at, at the idea of liking smart? No, not the idea of liking Then what? Smart out there, you think? Yeah, I so. <laughs> Is that your guess? Um, so, well, uh, I don't know if you read the head note in the Oxford. It, it doesn't quite have as much information as it might, but um, Jubilate Agno, which is what their selection and um, pretty much the same selection is in the, in the Oxford Book of 18th Century Verse, um, was only published in the 20th century. Um, it was so it's actually under copyright, unfortunately, for another ten or fifteen years. Um, but it was, uh, and a lot of it is missing. Um, but it's uh, essentially papers um, that, or poem, or whatever it is that you want to call it. Uh, a um, the title means "Rejoice in the Lamb," um, and so it's a celebratory work text um, outburst um, and it's um, uh, what survives is about a hundred pages of it um, and you can actually find it in bookstores um, or online I mean you can find physical copies I don't think it's been put online I actually haven't checked Scribd so maybe, or Scribd or however you pronounce it so maybe someone put it there um, but it's it's a longish book. The um, I will consider my cat Jeffrey part is probably the most accessible part, um, but it's not the only good part. But basically, it's in several sheaves of papers, and in some of them, the fours and the lets the Oxford um, anthology prints them um, alternatingly. But the fours and the lets both survive. And if you get it in um, the book version, what you'll see is that they publish the four fours on the left-hand page. Sorry, the lets on the left-hand page and the fours on the right-hand page. Um, so let X rejoice with Y, who is the something of Z, and then four, um, and then he'll talk about something personal. So there's probably a little bit a substantial minority, but only a minority of the book, maybe 30 or 40 percent, has both the fours and the lets. Um, and then there's some pages which are just fours and some which are just lets. Um, and um, obviously, I think, I hope it's obvious, we wish that it all existed. Um, it is really way out there, but um, it's the kind of thing that if you memorized, you would never, your friends would never have to worry about being bored um, if you could recite bits of it to them um, and you would never have to worry about stocking your mind with interesting and out of the way things um, actually I knew someone when I was an undergraduate who did try to memorize it, I don't think he succeeded maybe we stopped being friends because he was trying to do it, I don't remember <laughs> I don't recall that he succeeded but I don't know how I know that he didn't succeed um, but it's um, um, it's still it's still pretty amazing. So Smart basically he um, had some sort of um, religious maniacal breakdown, um, and there's a famous story that Boswell tells about Johnson, 
that um, Smart used to just fall to his knees um, in the streets and start praying um, or praising God. Prayer and praise for Smart seemed to go very close to each other. Um, and a lot of people thought reasonably enough that Smart was crazy. Um, but one day this happened in Johnson's um, presence, and he immediately got down on his knees and started praying and praising with him. And he said, I would rather pray with, with Kit Smart than um, have the uh, most interesting conversation with the most interesting men in England. Um, and he saw that there was something here whose intensity and, and strangeness and interestingness um, was just wonderful and that people were too quick to dismiss it. At any rate, because of this behavior, Smart was put in Bedlam, put in um, an insane asylum, released and then um, recommitted. And it was in the asylum that he wrote Jubilate Agno. And he did it, a lot of it, he did at the rate of one line a day. So when you read something like, For I Will Consider My Cat Jeffrey, that's three or four weeks of consideration um, that he's doing. Um, it's what's keeping him sane or saner um, is this um, amazing song of praise in a situation which is horrendous in every way. Um, lunatic asylums um, are still horrendous, but they were much more horrendous back then. They were just keeping people off the streets, um, and they were terrible. And you can, you can tell a little bit about um, where he was by um, the fact that there are rats there, that he's allowed to have his cat, um, but in his cell, the rats are attacking his cat. Um, and uh, his cat survives, um, we're glad to say. I'm glad to say, and I don't even like cats. Um, but, um, um, but he's in a situation of just the most grinding misery. Um, and he's got some sort of manic depressive misery going on within him. Um, and he's still producing um, these poems of praise, so that all the let sections of Jubilate Agno, um, the uh, first word is almost always let, and the third wor word um, is almost always rejoice. Um, let X rejoice with Y. Um, so they're, they're poems of rejoicing, and then the song to David is also a poem of rejoicing. And um, that, those, that, that rejoicing is amazing. Um, Gray really disliked Smart. They had been friends, and then they had a terrible break. Um, and um, it's probably worth thinking just on internal terms from their poetry what the difference between Gray and Smart is. Um, they are both, as practically everyone we're doing now, um, proto-romantics. As, a, as, our, as is practically everyone we're doing now, proto-romantics. That is, um, the sort of thing that you get in romantic poetry is being adumbrated in Gray, in um, Collins, in Young, in Cooper, who we're going to be doing for Friday, um, and in Smart. Um, and there's a way that you can think of the romantic poets as combining what seems uncombinable um, among all these figures. But if you guys didn't like Thompson, um, which uh, you, which makes perfect sense to me. Um, I mean, some of it is good, but if you didn't like the seasons, for example, um, it's worth considering the difference between the kind of um, 
multifarious universal examination of everything in the world that you get in SMART and the multifarious universal examination of everything in the world that you get in Thompson. Thompson is also all over the place when he's describing nature. He's going everywhere and noting everything that he sees in nature and praising all the varieties of nature, but their tone is so incredibly different. Um, and the, the feel um, that you get from that tone is so incredibly different um, that it's worth thinking about where does that come from? Um, why does smart, um, it's not only diction, but why does smart sound so much different from, um, from Thompson? Um, so that's, that's something to consider also. What I thought we'd do is start with SMART, and then if we have time, we'll go back to the elegy in a country churchyard, um, which we didn't really um, get a chance to do right. Um, but, um, but why don't we just start, look at the Jubilate Agna. Did, which of the two did you like better, the song to David or Jubilate Agna? really different. Yeah, they, no, I know. Different enough that you're just going to split and not lump and not decide. He reminds me of Charles Gateau. Go on. It's just the whole like the mania and the praise of God and just like I, I couldn't get the ballad of Gateau out of my head when I was reading it. Okay. What do other people think? Out there was your term. Which is more out there? Right. Um. I think the Jubilate seems a little bit more crazy to me. Uh-huh. But in a poetical sense, I like the song to David. You did like it better. Yes. Okay. George? I like the Jubilate. You know, it's it's kind of wild. He's like trying to write his own Bible in a sense. Uh, yeah. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, probably a lot of what's behind Smart and what's maybe helpful to think about what's behind him is the book of Job. Um, so you're nodding, so explain. Um, the book of Job is basically, uh, Job is all righteous and, um, praises God in every way, and, uh, I'm pretty sure God has some dialogue in heaven, uh, where the devil was, or whoever that figure is, I haven't read this in a long time, has basically said, well, of course Job is praising you because you're giving him all of these beautiful and good things, so God tests Job and, uh, takes away these good things, and even after he's like, I forget all of the tests, but it's something ridiculously awful, and he puts him through um, misery, Job is still praising God, and then uh, God feels bad and gives things back. Actually, no, I, you, I you actually skipped an important oh, okay. part, um, which is interesting. <laughs> it's probably a different part. That is, Job is probably a combination of two different original works. Mm -hmm. But Job is the book in the Bible. So, two interesting things about Job. One, it's the book in the Bible where God says most. I think God talks more in the book of Job than in the rest of um, the Bible combined, um, by a lot. Um, two, it's the only, eh, with a kind of exception of the book of Ruth, which is only a kind of exception, it's really the only book in the Hebrew Bible whose hero is not Jewish, who's, or Hebrew, whose hero is Gentile. Job is a Gentile. Um, so what happens in the book of Job is after Satan, who simply means the adversary, he's not Satan with horns and, and a tail, um, in Job, but he's simply the kind of um, 
uh, prosecutor in the courts of heaven um, who's always investigating um, what um, human beings are doing so that so and and painting things in the worst possible light, which is his job. It's not that he's doing it because he's mean, although he may have picked that job because he's mean, but he picks that job. Um, and he says the reason Job is good, as you were saying, Daniel, the reason Job is good is that you gave him so much, but take everything away and he will curse you. And so God does take everything away except his life. He's covered with boils. He's miserable. And he therefore becomes a kind of representative of everything that can go wrong with human beings. And he refuses to curse God. Um, and um, his wife says, you know, don't put up with this anymore. You should curse God and die. You know, if you curse God, you'll just die and you'll be relieved. And Job refuses. So after that, God says, okay, you've done really well. I'm proud of you, to Job. And Job says, well, I have one question. Why did you do this to me? I don't understand. And then that's where God has this incredibly long aria um, of rebuke to Job. And the rebuke is, you're darn tootin' you don't understand. What do you know about the world? Nothing. Um, canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook, to quote um, a line that, that Herman Melville made famous. Um, uh, and there's a long, long, long catalog, uh, essentially, of the variety the sublime variety of the world. The book of Job is often regarded as the book in the Bible that exemplifies the sublime. Um, it's about tempests and storms and behemoth and leviathan and um, where the thunder comes from. And it's just an endless and amazing sublime catalog of all of God's works. Um, and the idea that Job, that some human being should think that he's in a position to wonder why God is doing something when what God does is so beyond human comprehension leads to, as I say, to this tremendous um, catalog of sublimity in the world. Um, it's, it's, you know, like going to the Museum of Science and, and seeing a, um, um, an IMAX presentation um, in hyperspeed of, of all the wonders of the world. That's what God is saying to Job. Ariel. Oh. oh, I thought your hand was up. Okay. Um, and that's, I think, what's behind um, all of Smart's praises. That is, that in both um, the, the Song to David and in Jubilate Agno, um, he just has these amazing lists of things. Um, the world is just unbelievable, or his world, there he is in this cell, just closed up, windowless, alone with his rats and his cat. Um, leading a life of misery for seven years. And what he's thinking of are all the different things in the world and all and every single thing in the world is an occasion for rejoicing. Um, so that's what he's doing is he's making this um, incredible list of all the things in the world. Um, so the one they pick here from fragment B1, um, this is page 672. See, I finally am on the same page as you. Um, half the names, or more than half the names, probably 80% of the names are made up. Um, that is, they're quasi-biblical names. Some of them are real biblical names. Some of them are um, names from different um, uh, traditions. Um, there's a great book, if you're interested, called The Dictionary of Angels, 
um, that came out in the 70s. Uh, quite a wonderful book. That um, It's actually called The Dictionary of Angels, Including the Fallen Angels. Um, and it's a list of all the angels in the angelology um, uh, from around the 4th century to the 16th or 17th century, including the Islamic angels um, and their interrelations with each other. So you can find a lot of obscure people. Are they people? A lot of obscure beings um, in the Dictionary of Angels. Um, Metatron, anyone remember who he is? Good Omens. Oh, is he in Good Omens too? Yeah, he's also in. I forgot he was in Good Omens. He's yeah. He's he's the evil, um, he's the evil usurper who and power behind the throne and the amber spyglass. Um, yeah, he is the recording angel. He's from the Kabbalah. Um, Metatron is the only angel who can sit in the presence of the Lord. Um, it is he who inscribes your name in the book of life um, until you die. Then he doesn't. Um, and um, so he's, he's a major angel in the Dictionary of Angels. So anyhow, um, reading smart is a little bit like riffling through the pages of the Dictionary of Angels. Um, and a lot of these are, are figures that smart has made up. Um, but often they're rejoicing with things on earth so that persistently um, throughout this, what you will have is some kind of... Um, amazingly named angelic figure um, who is rejoicing with a figure on earth who is connected um, or is similar to that figure or similar to the thing that figure represents um, in some way or other. So um, let Eliseur rejoice with the partridge who is a prisoner of state and is proud of his keepers. Um, begins B1. Um, and um, so the partridge um, is a bird kept in a cage at this point, um, a, a domesticated fowl, um, but one that, like the peacock, shows pride. So a prisoner of state and proud, and is proud of his keepers. And so clearly that partridge then is um, also connected to some angelic figure, some sublime figure whom we don't know who it is, um, this little bird in a cage, but also connected to Smart, who is also a prisoner of state. Um, so the Partridge and Eliezer and um, Smart, all three are um, connected there. Notice, by the way, that Smart is both lumping and splitting. Um, that's what he does at every moment. Um, and then we get the four section, which, which he writes on the opposite page in his notebook. <coughs> For I am not without authority in my jeopardy, which I derive inevitably from the glory of the name of the Lord. So the partridge is a prisoner of state and proud of his keepers. Um, and I say, let that rejoicing happen, because I too am not without authority, in my jeopardy. So here he is, lost, in jeopardy, not in danger, but in an inability to control his fate. There he is, lost entirely, imprisoned in this cell, um, with no one to do his bidding or to care about him. And yet, he is not without authority. Why? Because I derive it inevitably from the glory of the name of the Lord. I can name the Lord. Um, that name fills me with his own glory. Remember, um, 
a while ago, I don't think I came back to this last Friday, but a while ago I told you, not that long ago actually, um, I told you Longinus's definition, not of the natural sublime, not of Mont Blanc or the Grand Canyon or um, things in nature which blow you away, but of the poetical sublime, which he defines where he says that the soul takes a proud flight as though she herself has written what she has only heard or read. Um, that is, that you are filled with exaltation as though you were the source of the thing that you're reading. Smart is giving a religious spin to this. That is, the glory of the name of the Lord fills his soul, Longinus would say, with a proud flight, even in this prison. He can call upon this rejoicing because he is filled with the glory of the name of the Lord. Let Shedugior rejoice with Pyrausta, who dwelleth in a medium of fire, which God hath adapted for him. Um, so that's the, in, pyre in that name means fire, means inhabitant of fire. Um, so here's this insect, like the salamander, which mythologically was supposed to dwell in fire, who dwelleth in a medium of fire, which God hath adapted for him. For I bless God, he says, let this rejoicing happen. Why? For I bless God, whose name is jealous. Jealous there meaning um, synonymous for smart with zealous. Um, same root. Um, smart's uh, Greek and Latin were probably, of the people we're reading, it's possible that smart was the best classicist. Um, maybe Johnson was as good, but... Um, Smart's translations of Horace, his prose translations of Horace, are still um, pretty much the standard trot for Horace. Um, he also did verse translations of Horace, which are pretty amazing. Um, but his prose translations of Horace are pretty much the standard trot for Horace. Um, so he knows that the word zealous and the word jealous are the same root. Um, and it means intent on um, the glory or on the interests of the things on whose behalf jealousy or zeal work. Um, so, I bless God whose name is jealous and there is zeal to deliver us from everlasting burnings. So God ad adapts the fire to Pirausta and he adapts the fire to us so that we don't burn away but can be rescued, delivered from it as the insect is delivered from everlasting burnings. Let Shalumiel rejoice with Olor, who is of goodly savor, and the very look of him harmonizes the mind. So just think, as the footnote tells you, Olor means, means a swan, um, and it also um, gives you the idea of the olfactory, um, that which smells, in this case, good. So the very look at a swan harmonizes the mind just for smart imagining a swan gives him a feeling of harmony. Um, and, the, and the swan reminds him of sweet smells. And then he says, so just let that rejoicing happen. Why? For my existimation, not a word coined by George Bush, um, but a word um, that smart forgot was Greek and not English. Um, or Latin but not English, for my existimation, my esteem, my um, reputation, um, how people um, see me from outside, for my existimation 
is good even amongst the slanderers, and my memory shall arise for its sweet savor unto the Lord, um, because I love God so much. So I don't um, stink figuratively or literally. Let Jael rejoice with the plover who whistles for his live and foils the marksmen and their guns. So the plover is a kind of bird, and he whistles um, and sings and foils the marksmen and the guns um, as though he himself is a target of the marksmen and the guns. For I bless the Prince of Peace and pray that all the guns may be nailed up, save such as are for the rejoicing days. That is, when you shoot guns in joy, when you shoot salutes in guns, um, shoot guns in order to celebrate something not shoot guns in order to hurt or to kill. So just imagine 100 pages of this, um, of, um, of ecstatic rejoicing over the very fact that he can make these connections over and over again. Smart's resourcefulness in making connections and in producing these incredible lists of things and of remembering them and collecting them um, is part of what's amazing about him. It's also what you get in um, the song to David, which has the very odd structure of, okay, so now I'm going to praise you, David. You're really pretty amazing. Because you praised God, which is really important, and you praised all the things that God did, namely, and then you get something like 300 lines of smart smart praising David for having praised the God who did all these things. And then what smart does is lists. Again, it's a long, long list. Now rhymed, though, and in meter. But a long, long, long list of all the incredible things that God did. Um, a long, long list of apprehension of the world. Um, and it really builds to a crescendo. It's... it's um, you're right that both these poems are out there. Neither of them is in any conventional way a great poem. Um, but what they are are extreme versions. Um, ex really, I mean, how can I say extremely extreme versions of um, one thing that a more um, balanced poem, if it were great, would do. Um, Smart really has his mind full of Milton more than anyone else. And um, there's, there's uh, the footnotes don't flag this for you, um, either because they think you should know or they think it doesn't matter whether you know or not how much Milton, Miltonic diction there is in Smart. Um, but he has his mind full of Milton's encyclopedic sense of um, the sublimity of the world. And Smart is taking that thing, which is very well balanced in Milton with everything else in Milton, and he's only focusing on that, um, focusing on all these, all these moments of praise um, and thinking hard about them. Just go, just for a minute, go um, forward to the song to David. Um, did people actually read through the whole thing, every word? See, you should. The entire exam... Part one of the exam, but how many parts will there be? That I'm not going to tell you. But part one of the exam will be all about smart. So you should read every word. Really? Yeah. All about smart? All about smart. Part one. Part smart. Uh. No, that doesn't work. Um, but um, 
look at um, a surprising moment. Okay, uh, it's always hard to figure out where to start with this. Um, so he's praising David. Um, he goes through a bunch of adjectives at line 19. Great, valiant, pious, good, and clean, sublime, contemplative, serene, strong, constant, pleasant, wise. So you see that list of adjectives, lines 19 to 19 and 20. Um, those are all the attributes of David. Great, valiant, pious, good, and clean, sublime, contemplative, serene, strong, constant, pleasant, wise. Um, and how many is that? Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So the next twelve stanzas are going to begin with each of those adjectives. He's going to demonstrate. Um, oh, and bright effluence of exceeding grace. That's the next line. Um, anyone know where the phrase bright effluence comes from? What's your guess, since I already told you? Good guess, yes. Oh, God, you guys are so scholarly. What line is this, 19? Um, no, this is line 22 of the Song to David. No? I don't think so. We don't have that. Oh, do you have an excerpt? That's why. Oh, I think. Yeah, it's in this, it's in this book. Oh, so you didn't even read all of the excerpts. Oh, good. Um, Liz, were you about to say something? No. Oh, okay. Um, it's 676. Yeah, so 676 in the Oxford Anthology, not the New Oxford book. In Price, not in Lonsdale. All right, well, so David is all these things. Great, valiant, pious, good, and clean, sublime, contemplative, serene, strong, constant, pleasant, wise, bright effluence of exceeding grace, best man, the swiftness and the race, the peril and the prize. So he is both the swiftness and the race. Um, he's both those things, the race where swiftness wins and the swiftness that wins the race. He's also the peril, that is the danger of the race and the prize for overcoming the peril. He's all those things. Um, as Emerson will later translate the Brahmin hymn, I am the dancer and the dance, and I the hymn that the Brahmin sings. Um, so David, a um, hundred years earlier, is all those things as well. So there we get, but the, the phrase bright effluence, yes, Milton, good. Um, where? So it's the invocation of book three, hail, holy light, offspring of heaven firstborn, of, or of the eternal, co-eternal being, may I express thee, unblamed, since God is light, and never but in unapproached light, dwelt from eternity, dwelt then in thee, bright effluence of bright essence in create. I know I lost you, but um, what light is, says Milton, as he praises light, as he addresses what should be an invocation to the muses, to light itself. He gives a one-line definition of light, bright effluence of bright essence in create. So God is the bright essence of himself. God's essence is his brightness, or God's essence is essentially bright. And light, 
is the effluence, the outflow of that essence, what flows out, ex fluere, effluence, what flows out, in create, uncreated. God was always light, so God's light was always flowing, always streaming from him. So that great, strange, Miltonic phrase, bright effluence, that's really on Smart's mind. So they don't flag it for you, but there it is. Bright effluence of exceeding grace. That's what David is. So then we get, he is great from the luster of his crown, from Samuel's horn and God's renown, which is the people's voice. He is valiant, the next stanza tells you. The word, and up he rose. The fight, he triumphed o'er the foes whom God's just laws abhor. He's pious, next adjective, magnificent and grand. Twas he the famous temple plan, the seraph in his soul. Um, he is good from Yehuda's genuine vein. Who'd have thought? From God's best nature, good and grain. That's eh, a different Yehuda. Good from Yehuda's genuine vein, from God's best nature, good and grain, his aspect and his heart. He's clean if perpetual prayer be pure. He's sublime. His invention, because he's a poet, his invention is ever young, a vast conception. Actually, go back to clean. Clean, if perpetual prayer be pure. So what makes him clean is that his prayer is perpetually pure. I'll just say that here's a place where we can do a little reverse engineering. Clean is a word that really stands out here as weird. Um, among great, valiant, pious, good, sublime, contemplative, serene, strong, constant, pleasant, wise. Oh, and clean, too. Um, yeah. Well, but it's also, it's uh, clean in his gestures, hands, and feet. It's, it's, it's a gracefulness. Not right. Like a, yeah. It's and not it, about washing his hands. Yes, and it's about purification, and it's also about rhyming. Um, that is, that, that there's a sense in which the rhyme words are the ones that poems have to justify, um, rhyming isn't hard. Justifying rhymes is hard. Um, and um, but he does. He says, "But prayer purifies you. Prayer, prayer, therefore, brings you to that cleanliness which is next to godliness." So clean, odd word I know. But if perpetual prayer be pure, see that alliteration there. Perpet if perpetual prayer be pure, um, perpetual prayer. That's smart praying without ceasing, if perpetual prayer be pure, and love which could itself endure to fasting and to fear, that is, his love allowed him when Saul was chasing him to experience fasting and fear without worry, clean in his gestures, hand and feet, to smite the lyre, the dance complete, that is, to complete the dance, to play the sword and spear. So David was good at all those things. He danced before the Lord. Um, he played the lyre. He was the poet. He is the figure of the poet in the Hebrew Bible. David is always playing his psalter or the lyre, as, as um, Smart is calling it. Um, and also playing the sword and spear. Notice the strange verbs here. What are the verbs that you would expect? Wielding. Wielding the sword and spear, but what um, if you were um, um, looking at these actual lines, there's a kind of reversal in 
um, at, in um, verbs here? Play the liar. Play the liar and smite. and smite the sword and spear, or smite with sword and spear. But for David, it's all complete. It's all unified. It's a seamless thing. So he smites the liar as a poet. He is striking the liar as though in war. Um, not striking against the liar, but striking it with all the power that would go into war. And he's playing the sword and spear as though he's, he's a singer of war, or as though war is a song. And then he follows up that idea of David as poet with the idea of his sublimity, sublime. Invention ever young. What does invention ever young there mean? What is it, do people know what invention means when you're talking about poetry? It's an important word. It's a little bit um, old-fashioned now, but it's an important word in um, describing the talents of a writer. Invention is a very important talent for a writer. What would you guess it meant? Is it creativity? Yeah, it's a little bit more specific than creativity, and it's kind of resourcefulness in pursuing creativity. So um, what invention means is that um, you are so well stocked with ideas and words and um, knowledge and facts that you can always find just the right thing to um, be able to express what you want to express. Um, when we talk about people being inventive, it means that they're very quick in their minds um, to figure out um, how to solve a problem how to put things together. They have a whole lot of things in their minds, and they're very quick in seeing which to pick and how to put it together. So invention in poetry, the word um, invention originally means to find, not to make up. Now we talk about inventions. We think of invention as being the opposite of finding, um, that is creating. But originally, that's not what it means. Um, what it means is to find something and to be good at finding. Um, what an inventor is, is someone who is good at finding a solution to a problem. Good at realizing that if you run electricity through a coil, as everyone knows, you'll get a magnetic field. But at this point, a magnetic field is exactly what you want. Or if you spin that magnetic field, you'll be able to impart motion. So invention is having scientific knowledge, let's say, our modern use of invention is having scientific knowledge and being resourceful in the application of that knowledge. That's what it means to invent something. It means to figure something out um, through the application of that knowledge. What's the middle sibling in a series of unfortunate events? She's the inventor. Violent. Sorry? She's the oldest? Oh, that's right. And Klaus is the middle? Yeah. Ah. Misinformation in a Brandeis classroom. Um, but yeah, Violet knows a lot. Um, she's, she's the one who reads all the time. Um, so her inventiveness, um, as Daniel Handler um, reminds us, um, what? You call him Daniel Handler? It's not Daniel Handler? Well, it's Lemony Snicket. Yeah, but isn't his real name Daniel Handler? It's complicated. It's complicated? <laughs> isn't Klaus the one that reads all the time? It is. Yeah, oh, shoot. <laughs> I thought she read all the time, too. No? All right. She has the ribbon, and then she can invent. <laughs> oh, well, so I'm wrong. <laughs> or he's wrong. Invention, which here means finding 
things out by using the knowledge that you already have. Um, so I forget I said anything. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Let's try that from the record. Yeah. I don't know. When I was reading, I seem to remember Klaus giving her Oh, okay. All right. Yay. <laughs> that works. That works. My faith, my faith in Lemony Snicket is, is um, restored. His niece took a class from me here. She used to go here. I think she graduated. I hope she's not still here because that was several years ago. Um, she said that their Thanksgiving dinners were very odd because um, their family... Um, trashed him for trying to be a writer and not doing anything important with his life. And then he became the richest member of their family and they weren't they weren't willing to give up trashing him. But <laughs> it became harder. Um, so anyhow, yes. That's what invention means. Um, so sublime David is. Invention ever young, that is he's always quick to be able to think of something. Um, a vast conception, another quality of the poet is that his conception is vast. Um, he can think about the whole universe. He can write about the whole universe. Towering tongue to God, the eternal theme. So that I think you should see as a wishful or a, an ambitious, a goal-like, um, a target self-portrait for smart. Um, that's what he wants to be. He wants to be sublime with ever young resourcefulness or invention. His conception vast, his language towering, and all on behalf of God, which is the eternal theme for him. Notes from yon exaltations caught, unrivaled royalty of thought or meaner strains supreme. So all his notes are caught from the <coughs> exaltation that is beyond him, that's transcendent. Yon exaltation would mean something like transcendent exaltation there. Notes from yon exaltations caught unrivaled royalty of thought. Royalty over meaner strains, supreme. So other poetry is nothing compared to this poetry. Then we get to the next adjective, sublime, contemplative, serene. We get to contemplative contemplative on God to fix his musings. So he thought a lot, he contemplated and mused about God. Contemplative on God to fix his musings and above the sixth, the Sabbath day, he blessed. Um, who blessed? According to the Bible, who blesses the Sabbath? God. Um, According to Smart, David repeats that blessing of the Sabbath day. He's contemplative, and what he likes to do in his moments of contemplation, unlike Eloisa, he likes to think of God. Um, Pope and Smart were friends. Um, Smart was uh, 30 years younger than Pope. Um, but uh, I think it says this in the head note here, um, Pope gave Smart, this shows you what a good classicist was, Pope gave Smart permission to translate the essay on criticism into Latin, which Smart then did. Um, 
and you can imagine that, so what, what Smart then has to do is find some way to do the same demonstrations in Latin of both good and bad poetry that Pope has done in English. And ten low words off creep in one dull line. I should actually look it up, I never have. But um, it's, it's, I'm wondering how that comes out in Latin, and ten low words off creep in one dull line. Especially since in Latin it would probably have to be more like 18 words. Um, 18 low words off creep in one dull line. Um, so, um, nevertheless, what Eloisa thinks about in contemplation is Abelard and not God. What David, the poet to whom, whom Smart reveres above all others and whom he seems to merge with Milton, but under the name David, um, what David thinks about is God. And so David, like all of us, blesses the Sabbath because the Sabbath is the day of contemplation, the day when you can contemplate, when you don't have to run the state but can give yourself over to contemplation. And because he's King David, his blessing of the Sabbath is a notable event, much like God's blessing of the Sabbath. David blessing the Sabbath becomes a picture of the divine. The thing you have to remember is that Jesus is um, a descendant of David's. Um, that is that in Christian and in particular in Protestant theology, um, the um, idea is that um, David is a prefiguration for Jesus. He's king of the Jews. He's um, king in Jerusalem. Um, and so Jesus later as king of the Jews and savior of all mankind um, is a kind of later what's called fulfillment of, the, of a promise that David makes. Um, Jesus combines within himself according to, to Christian theology. Jesus combines within himself um, fulfillments of, you've heard the word, but it's actually a technical <coughs> word in theology, of prefigurations to be found in other people. In Adam, um, because Jesus is the second Adam, he's sometimes called. He's the second pure male who was ever created on earth um, without sin. Adam is created without sin. And the next man to be created without sin is Jesus. Um, so Adam is a prefiguration of Jesus. Moses is a prefiguration of Jesus. David is a prefiguration of Jesus. Um, so here, Smart is thinking of that when he has David bless the Sabbath, um, which is like God blessing the Sabbath. Um, the poet who repeats what the creator has done. So... He fixes his musings on God, and therefore above the sixth, the Sabbath day, he blessed. And then a little three lines about the Sabbath. Twas then his thoughts self-conquest pruned, and heavenly melancholy tuned to bless and bear the rest. So it was then, it's a hard line, self-conquest pruned, but it's something like, on the Sabbath, the difficult self-control, which is a good thing that David had. He had self-control, and he reigned in his worser um, desires and aspirations. But on the Sabbath, he didn't have to do that anymore. 
the self-conquest no longer, um, he no longer had to force himself not to do evil and to refrain from things and conquer himself, but he could just get rid of those impulses. It was the Sabbath. It was the day of rest, even for any evil impulses in him that he had to conquer. So he could prune away the very act of self-conquest. Um, and whatever else was bothering him, he could tune heavenly melancholy in order to bear the rest of thing, the things that were bothering him and to bless them. These three lines are probably the hardest and maybe the most important three lines in the poem. To bless and bear the rest. That is, that somehow that part of human experience which made even David sad, which made even David melancholy, and even on the Sabbath, that is melancholy, but it's heavenly melancholy. It's the melancholy of poetry. It's the melancholy of the minor key. And that, too, is at the center of poetry. It may be the center of poetry, poetry in a minor key. And so it allows him to bear the rest, but also to bless it, to bless the possibility of this sort of poetry. So that adversity for Smart is... For him, again, this is a version of the sublime. Adversity, unhappiness, difficulty, um, the hard to bear, all of those give life and power and um, affect and emotion to poetry. Um, so you can bless those also. You don't just bless God for the good things that he does, um, but you bless God too, and even more so here, you bless God for the melancholy, because it's the melancholy that's, um, that makes the poetry possible. Um, that's why God calms the world, um, as the next stanza has it. Um, it's worth just, I want us to get back to um, um, the um, Jubilate Agno, but um, if you just, uh, just a couple of other moments here. Um, the angels at line 110 um, speed to and fro with blessings. The word bless is one to notice here. Um, the, um, here's a, and, and now we get this long starting at line 103. Um, Eh, start at line 97. This is important, too. His muse, bright angel of his verse, gives balm for all the thorns that pierce, for all the pangs that rage. So the muse, which is the bright angel of his verse, is what soothes you for piercing thorns and raging pangs of life. Blessed light still gaining on the gloom. That is the muse of poetry, the light of poetry. is a blessed light still gaining on the gloom. The more than Michal of his bloom, the Abishag of his age. The muse is more important to him 
than his wives, than his consorts. And then we shift into the description of God, introduced simply by the four words, he sung of God. And then we're going to hear what he sung of, and Smart is going to spend the rest of the poem essentially singing of God himself. Here's what he sung of. God, the mighty source of all things, the stupendous force on which all strength depends, etc. Um, he sung of angels, he sung of man, um, but God is also the source of angels and of man. The world, at line 121, the clustering spheres he made, the glorious light, the soothing shade. God made all these things, the glorious light, the soothing shade, dale, champagne, that is um, landscape, fields, um, grove and hill, the multitudinous abyss where secrecy remains in bliss and wisdom hides her skill. So the multitudinous abyss where secrecy remains in bliss. That's another version maybe of melancholy. Um, and um, then let's just go on. We get a long thing, all, the whole description of the things he made. Um, angels, man, the world, trees, plants, and flowers, fowl, fishes, beasts, gems. Um, and um, then we get to... Um, the creation of the world and the seven pillars of the world um, and then go to around line 300 um, 289 he addresses David again O David highest in the list of worthies on God's ways insist the genuine word repeat so what David does is he repeats what God has to say. That's what poetry is. Vain are the documents of men, and vain the flourish of the pen that keeps the fool's conceit. So don't worry about other poetry. Only repeat God's word. And then this hymn to praise, and that you can take as a kind of um, explanation of Jubilate Agno and of what Smart does in his poetry. Praise above all. That's the most important thing, is praise. Praise above all, for praise prevails. Heap up the measure, load the scales, and good to goodness add. The generous soul her savior aids, but peevish obloquy degrades. The Lord is great. And glad. So now we know what God is. He's great and glad. And the generous soul both helps her Savior, um, contributes to the great praise of the universe, and is also helped by. That is, which is subject and which is direct object in that line are not clear. And the confusion is um, an enriching one, not an impoverishing one. And then we get, I don't know how many stanzas about adoration. For adoration, all the ranks of angels yield eternal thanks, and David in the midst. So the very idea that we can adore, we are thankful for the fact that we are able to adore. For adoration, seasons change, and order, truth, and beauty range, adjust, attract, and fill. The grass, 
the polyanthus checks and polished porphyry reflects by the descending hill. So now what you're going to get is a description of the variety of the world, all for adoration. God does all this thing to make us adore the world, to make us adore his works, to make us adore him. And adoration is a good experience. That is, it's for us that he does all this thing. We therefore give thanks for the experience of adoration. That's psychologically an important thing for smart to see that the experience of adoration is one that people like. Um, it's not enslaving to adore. It's enfranchising. It's freeing to adore. You feel it completely. So, for, so rich almonds color to the prime for adoration. So just look at all the beautiful things in the world, and they're all there for adoration. Rich almonds color to the prime for adoration or next stanza. With vinous syrup, cedar spout from rocks, pure honey gushing out for adoration springs. Um, it's all there for adoration. The spotted ounce and playsome cubs run rustling amongst the flowering shrubs and lizards feed the moss. For adoration, beasts embark while waves upholding halcyon's arc no longer roar and toss. They do that for adoration. Um, while Israel sits beneath his fig with coral root and amber sprig, the weaned adventurer sports, where to the palm the jasmine cleaves for adoration amongst the leaves. The gale his peace reports, then silverings and crucians glide for adoration gilt, for adoration, ripening canes and cocoa's purest milk detains the Western pilgrim's staff. All for adoration. Now labor his reward receives. For adoration, counts his sheaves to peace her bounteous prince. The wealthiest crops of whitening rice amongst thyine woods and groves of spice for adoration grow. The laurels with the winter strive, the crocus burnishes alive upon the snow-clad earth. For adoration, myrtles stay to keep the garden from dismay and bless the sight from dearth. One more. It keeps going on. But the pheasant shows his pompous neck, and ermine, jealous of a speck with fear, eludes offense. The sable with his glossy pride for adoration <coughs> is described where frosts the wave condense, um, the sable in the frozen regions of the north. Um, all of this is for adoration. And what Smart is doing is really focusing not only on the word adoration, but on the word for. That is, they do it because of adoration. That is, they do this because they adore life. Everyone has everything, every being. Every natural object in the world has an instinct for life, adores life, adores the creator, therefore, of life. Um, all natural beings go where they go because of adoration. But for also means, in English, um, for the purpose of producing. So it can mean both on account of and in order to. 
All these things are there so that we might adore, so that we perceiving what the world is like might adore. And that, again, is that midway um, place, that ambiguous um, and creative place that we are as perceivers, as half-creative perceivers, to quote Jung and to anticipate Wordsworth, as half-creative perceivers, between um, seeing how everything in the world is full of adoration. If you guys know Hopkins, um, this is in a lot of ways prefigurative of Hopkins. Um, Pied beauty, glory be to God, to the dappled things. Is this familiar to you? Um, so it's, we are in a place where we can see all the adoration that's going on in the world. And how should we respond to seeing all this adoration that drives the incredible diversity and energy of all these natural beings? We should respond to this adoration by feeling adoration. We should feel what we see and understand what we see through feeling it. And that connection, those two versions of four, in order to produce adoration in us and, account, uh, and on account of the adoration that they feel, those two versions of the word four, that's what SMART is pushing and pushing. Just look at this amazing world and um, understand that it's amazing because everything in it is amazed. And so are you if you were understand that everything is everything in it is amazed and therefore if you find it amazing you will be both amazed and amazing if you find the world amazing you will be amazed just as the world is that's what he's saying over and over again so that just again you know it's so easy to think smart is is some kind of um, pious maniac um, but just think of what it's like to um, be writing this poem where the second and third and second at last stanzas all begin, every line begins with the word glorious. It's become a complete hymn to God. Line, yeah. Did he write this before or after? After. After. Um, this isn't what put him in. This is what he was still able to say when he got out. Um, and he published this. This was published. Um, after, after his release. But glorious the sun in mid-career, glorious the assembled fires appear, glorious the comet's train, glorious the trumpet and alarm, glorious the almighty stretched out arm, glorious the enraptured main, glorious the northern lights of stream, glorious the song when God's the theme, which again would be a crucial line, glorious the thunder's roar, glorious Hosanna from the den, Glorious, the Catholic, amen. Glorious, the martyrs, gore. Glorious, more glorious is the crown of him that brought salvation down my meekness called thy son. Thou, at stupendous truth, believed, and now the matchless deeds achieved, determined, dared, and done. Um, that's the most famous line in the poem, determined, dared, and done. Um, it became a kind of um, uh, slogan for the Brownings. Um, and uh, Robert Browning in particular loved that line, determined, dared, and done. But that's one of those stirring um, English uh, jingoistic 
praises. But here, it's, here you have to see that, that it's this extraordinary praise of God. So when you go back, let's go back to page 672 in the Martin Price anthology. Um, all these fours are the same fours as in for adoration. That is, on account of and with the result that. Let Elijah rejoice with the partridge, for I am not without authority in my jeopardy. I see that I'm not without authority in my jeopardy when I consider that Elijah should rejoice with the partridge. And as a result of that rejoicing, I am not without authority because I am like them. So then we get the great um, account of Jeffrey. For I will consider my cat Jeffrey. Is he the most famous cat in literature? No, the Cheshire cat would be. Um, for I will consider my cat Jeffrey, he writes one day. And then the next, he's looking at his cat, and he gets everything out of this cat. For he is the servant of the living God, duly and daily serving him. Amazing thing to get out of your cat. Duly and daily serving him. For at the first glance of the glory of God in the east, he worships in his way. He is glad to see sunrise. He looks at the sun. For is this done? By wreathing his body seven times round with elegant quickness. So he gets up in the morning and he circles seven times as he's stretching. For then he leaps up to catch the musk which is the blessing of God upon his prayer. So I said it was a windowless cell, but obviously it isn't. So he leaps up to get some of the dust that's in the um, shafts of light coming into the cell in the morning. Um, for he rolls upon prank to work it in, to work the musk in, to work the smoke and the vapors in. For having done duty and received blessings, he begins to consider himself. So I am considering my cat Jeffrey, and Jeffrey is considering himself. For this, this self-consideration, he performs in ten degrees. For first, he looks upon his forepaws to see if they are clean. How many of you have cats? So think of your own sweet cats. <laughs> think how they represent God. For first, he looks upon his forepaws to see if they are clean, just like David, clean. For secondly, he kicks up behind to clear away there. What's he clearing away? Yeah, his cat poop. This is a clean class. We don't use bad words. Um, for thirdly, he works it upon stretch with the forepaws extended. That means he just stretches with his, with his forepaws four um, out. For fourthly, he sharpens his paws by wood. For fifthly, he washes himself. For sixthly, he rolls upon wash. So he's wet and now he rolls around. For seventhly, he flees himself that he may not be interrupted upon the beat. So while he, so he gets rid of the fleas now, so he doesn't have to do it later. For eighthly, he rubs himself against a post. For ninthly, he looks up for his instructions. For tenthly, he goes in quest of food. And all of these, they're lost lets between them. So there are strange figures who are rejoicing with each other, strange Neil Gaiman-esque figures who are rejoicing with each other before the cat does any of these things. For having considered God and himself, he will consider his neighbor, yet more consideration. 
For if he meets another cat, he will kiss her in kindness. For when he takes his prey, he plays with it to give it a chance. That Jeffrey. For one mouse in seven escapes by his dallyings. So some of the mice do get away. For when his day's work is done, his business more properly begins. Why? For he keeps the Lord's watch in the night against the adversary. Um, the adversary is a big figure in Jubilate Agno. He appears a lot. He's whatever. He is some source for smart of um, his experience of insanity, is the adversary. It's Satan. Um, Satan means adversary in Aramaic. Um, and it's Jeffrey who is guarding him from the adversary. For he counteracts the powers of darkness by his electrical skin and glaring eyes. For he counteracts the devil who is death by brisking about the life. Um, so just think about that. On the one hand, there's the devil who is death. And on the other hand, there's this frisky cat. And the frisky cat, just because he loves life, he's only a frisky cat, but that's what's great about him. That he doesn't say, oh no, death, I'm oppressed by it. How can I stand in the wind of death? How can I stand up to the devil? He just does his cat-like things, and that counteracts the devil, who is death, by brisking about the life. For in his morning orisons, he loves the sun, and the sun loves him. For he is of the tribe of tiger. He's a cat, but he comes from tigers. For the cherub cat is a term of the angel tiger. So now he's invented an angel, the angel tiger. And he thinks that one of the ways the angel tiger will appear is, is a cherub cat, a little winged cat. Um, probably, I'm not sure about this, but I wouldn't be surprised if this affected Elliot's, Paul Possum's book, Practical Cats. Um, this cat, Jeffrey. Um, for he has the subtlety and hissing of a serpent, which in goodness he suppresses. So the cat can always hiss like a serpent, but he's a good cat, so he doesn't hiss very much. For he will not do destruction if he is well fed, neither will he spit without provocation. Such a good cat. For he purrs in thankfulness when God tells him he's a good cat. He's happy about that. How does God tell him he's a good cat? How does Smart know? Does he hear God tell him he's a good cat? He might. <laughs> Smart himself is an instrument of God. So. Yeah, or Smart tells him he's a good cat and Smart's an instrument of God. Or why else would he suddenly purr in satisfaction? It must be that God just told him he's a good cat because he also purrs when I tell him he's a good cat. Now he's purring and I'm saying nothing. God must be telling him he's a good cat. Four. He is an instrument for the children to learn benevolence upon. That's a great thing to be. Be nice to the cat. It's important to have a pet. Um, no adults want pets in their house, but it's good for the kids. Okay, we have to get a cat. It's good for them. They'll learn benevolence. For reason, sorry? Or torture. Or torture. Well, yeah, those would be the bad children. He's an instrument for the children to learn benevolence upon. For every house is incomplete without him, and a blessing is lacking in the spirit. So if you have to ever convince someone that you really should have a cat, this is what you should quote for them. Every house is incomplete without him, and, is a, ble and a blessing is lacking in the spirit. 
For the Lord commanded Moses concerning the cast of the departure of the children of Israel from Egypt, which I don't think is true, but Mark wanted it to be true. For every family had at least one cat in the bag, had one cat at least in the bag. Is that, is that where it comes from here? No, no, no. The, cat, no the cat in the bag, no. Oh. Um, no, it's actually, uh, you don't want to know about that. Oh. Um, but, um, yeah, so Smart imagines, how could it be otherwise? Cats are great. The children of Israel are the, are the Lord's chosen people. Of course they're bringing cats with them out of Egypt. How not? We know there were lots of cats in Egypt from the hieroglyphs. Um, and cats are great. They wouldn't leave any cats behind. That would be ridiculous. And then, we also know this. Why? For the English cats are the best in Europe. That is not a lie. <laughs> that is not a lie? Is that what you said? Definitely not. Definitely not, yes. <laughs> and not rabbit. Unlike those French cats who are really skunks disguised as Um for he is the cleanest in the use of his forepaws of any quadruped. For the dexterity of his defense is an instance of the love of God to him exceedingly. So he plays really well. He, he, um, he knocks really well. He spars really well. For he is the quickest to his mark of any creature. For he is tenacious of his point. For he is a mixture of gravity and waggery. For he knows that God is his savior. That's really good. For there is nothing sweeter than his peace when at rest. For there is nothing brisker than his life when in motion. For he is of the Lord's poor, and so indeed is he called by benevolence perpetually. That is, of the Lord's poor. That's what a cat is. And then, poor Jeffrey, poor Jeffrey, the rat has bit thy throat. It's awful. But the next day, for I bless the name of the Lord Jesus, that Jeffrey is better. Oh, yeah. For the divine spirit comes about his body to maintain it in complete cat. For his tongue is exceeding pure, so that it has impurity what it wants in music. So he can't sing, that's true, and if he yells, it's kind of ugly. But his tongue is just so soft and pure. For he is docile and can learn certain things. <laughs> for he can get up with gravity which is patience upon approbation for he can fetch and carry which is patience in employment so he does the right things and he's calm for he can jump over a stick which is patience upon proof positive that is you give him a stick and he says alright I'll jump over this stick you want me to do this trick for he can spraggle upon waggle at the word of command so go cat spraggle upon waggle okay <laughs> for he can jump from an eminence into his master's bosom. So he gets on, on the window ledge and he jumps onto Smart's chest. For he can catch the cork and toss it again. And now we know why he would be hated by the hypocrite and miser. For the former is afraid of detection and the cat will detect a hypocrite. For the latter refuses the charge. The cat will go to the miser and the miser will not pay for a cat. For he camels his back to bear the first notion of business. Um, he arches his back. For he's good to think on if a man would express himself neatly. It's a great line. He's good to think on. You want to know how to express yourself neatly? Think about a cat. Think how a cat would do it. Think about this when you write your papers. Think about a cat before you write anything. Can we write it in this style? 
cat. Except instead of like cats, it could be you know smart. Yes, or I will Swift. I will praise my boy Dryden mm-hmm. for his heroic couplets are really heroic. No, I don't think so. <laughs> for he made a great figure in Egypt for his signal services. For he killed the ichneumon rat very pernicious by land. For his ears are so acute that they sting again. So they can be sharp. When he raises his ears, you can feel their sharpness. For from this proceeds the passing quickness of his attention. For by stroking of him, I have found out electricity. Wow. For I perceive God's light about him, both wax and fire. That is, he's seen, he's stroked him at night and seen that kind of static glow that you can get out of the cat, as though he's both the wax of the candle and the fire that comes from it. For the electrical fire is the spiritual substance which God sends from heaven to sustain the bodies both of man and beast. So the static electricity is life itself. For God has blessed him in the variety of his movements. For though he cannot fly, he is an excellent clamberer. (laughs) For his motions upon the face of the earth are more than any other quadruped. For he can tread to all the measures upon the music. He dances to anything. For he can swim for life. They hate to swim, but if they have to, they can. For he can creep. Um, so that's some cat, as Charlotte might say. Um, and uh, that's a lot of praise that you can get if you can contemplate a cat the way Smart does. Um, and that's, that's, it is out there, but worth it. Okay, Goldsmith and um, Cooper for Friday.